Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Luke chapter 22. And the word of the Lord reads this way. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. The late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul once wrote, Christ exposed himself not only to the unbridled hostility of angry men, but more significantly to the unmitigated wrath of God. I want to welcome you back uh, this morning to the fifth part of our series titled, God, Who Is He? And in this series, we have been taking a look at trying to wrap our heads around the question of who is God. And as we've talked about, this is a simple question, but it's not a simple question to answer. Because what we've discovered so far is that God is bigger than our imaginations, that he is is greater than the images that, that, that many of us have in our minds of of, of, of who he is. God is greater than we can fully fathom, but God has also made himself known to us. He has revealed himself to us through his word. In the Bible, God has told us what he's like. And in this series, what we've been doing is we've been exploring the word of God in an effort to gain a bigger and fuller understanding of who God is and what his nature is like. And in the last few weeks, we've really covered some very big ideas about God. The first thing that we talked about was that God simply is. He is existence itself. He is eternal. He has has no beginning. He has no ending. He does not change whatsoever. That's what his name Yahweh means, that he simply is the one who exists. And everything else in the universe owes its existence to God because he created it all. The second thing we learned is that God is holy, which means God is both completely pure, you know, or totally righteous. And he then is also completely set apart, which means that he's different from his creation. God is completely other than us, which means that he is the most important and most valuable person or idea in the universe. God is holy. And then the third thing we learned is that God is transcendent, which means God is greater than and outside of even time and space. God transcends the universe. The observable universe is 96 billion light years across, and God is bigger than all of that, which means by definition, then, he is greater than our imagination. God is beyond what we can fully understand about him, which means if you, if you can completely wrap your head around and understand God and his nature, then really you worship a false God because God will transcend your very ability to fully know him. But number four, God is also eminent. Not only does God transcend the universe, but he God is at the same time ever present within every part of his universe. God is everywhere in the universe, which means God is also very near to us. God is very intimate with us. He personally knows us by name and he chooses to reveal himself to us, both in his word and in the person 
of Jesus Christ the Son. God has made a point to be near to us and to make himself known to us. And because of that, God is both far and transcendent and near and eminent. God is everything that we'll ever need because God is big enough to take care of the greatest problem that we could ever face. But he's also very near enough to bring us hope. And then number five, we talked about the fact that God is love. That he is by his very nature love. And because that he is loved, we know that number six, God is also triune. God is a trinity. Father, spirit, son, our God is three in one. Right? God is one in essence, three in persons. Right? God is a triune God because he is love. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. How does God being loved make him a trinity? Well, it's actually really simple. You just need to go back and listen to what we talked about last week because we talked all about it. Um, in fact, uh, the fact is that, that God's love does prove that he's a triune God. And if you've missed any of the messages, including last week, uh, you can certainly um, listen to those on our SoundCloud page or our church website. And much more of what we talk about will make more sense as we go along. But last week I promised that this week we would continue to talk about the fact that God is love. Right? And love, as we said, is a defining characteristic of who God is. It's a part of his divine nature. It's what makes God God, right? It's the, it, the fact that he is love. Love is an essential part of who God is. And because of that, then, love, then, is expressed in everything that he does. It's that love that caused him to create the universe. He created with beauty and splendor because of his love. It is his love that caused him to create mankind, a creature that was created in his own image, a creature built for a personal relationship with him. A creature that's meant to experience God in a personal way and to be loved by God and to love God in return. God created us out of his love. And it's God's love that caused him to send his son, Christ, to earth. You know, to become one of us and to walk in our shoes and to identify with us and ultimately to save us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Everything God does is driven by that love because God is love. It's out of God's love that he is benevolent towards us, which means the fancy word that means that he cares for us and provides for us and takes care of us and is good to us. God is benevolent towards us because of his love and because of his love. He is gracious toward us and merciful, right? God gives us grace and mercy because he loves us. We experience God as a gracious and merciful God because he is a loving God. God is, God's love is overwhelming and it's all encompassing and it affects all that he does. Because love is by very definition who he is. And so yes, God is love. And that should make us hopeful. That should cause us to rejoice. But what we really need to fully understand though God is love, but that is not all that he is. God is more than just love. God has other attributes besides love. God has other attributes that make him God, you know, such as we've talked about. Things like being eternal and holy and transcendent and eminent and triune. God is all of these things and even more. In fact, there's another attribute or characteristic of God's that we need to embrace and understand if we're really going to truly answer the question of who God is. Because without this other attribute, everything that we understand about God will really make no sense to us. Especially God's love. 
God's love will make no sense to us unless we understand the other attribute or characteristic of God that makes him who he is. The thing is, with our postmodern world, we tend to see God's love in isolation. We want to isolate that characteristic of him. We tend to view God's love by itself. We tend to see, you know, that, that, or, or believe that this is God's greatest defining attribute, the fact that he's love. And as we said last week, many people believe that and, that, and they believe that's pretty much the extent of all that they know about him. But the problem is it causes us to have a lopsided view of God, a false picture, if you will. That's why so many people want to believe that, that God is always all accepting and all affirming and always sweet and always nice and never wants anybody to be upset. That God never raises his voice or gets mad or condemns anyone because God is love. And because of that, that's what they imagine that God must be like. But the problem is, this is a misunderstanding of who God is. But it's also a misunderstanding of what love actually is. And I want you to hear me on this. Love is not always. Love is not always all accepting. Love is not always all affirming. Love is not always sweet and always nice. Love is not always tender. It's not always soft and unoffensive, right? Like God, love is more than that. Love is more complex than that. And if you've been married for any length of time, I think that you know that, right? And if you've been a parent for very long, you certainly know that, right? Let that three-year-old of yours Throw a full-on screaming bloody murder tantrum in the middle of the restaurant and you will discover that love is not always tender and sweet and nice. Love is not simply squishy and soft feelings. Sometimes love can be hard. Sometimes love can be tough and gritty and abrasive and even painful. Sometimes love is sharp and even cutting. Sometimes love is fist-clenching and teeth-gritting. And if, and if you would say no to that, I would say, then you really don't know or truly understand what love really is because love is more than pleasant feelings or always being agreeable. And so, yes, God is love, but that's not all that he is. God is also just, right? God is a God of justice. Remember, God is holy. He is morally pure. He is completely righteous, which means by his very nature, then he must be just. He is right. Justice is a part of his nature. It's one of his attributes, just as much as love is. Justice is what makes God, God, just like love does. And what we need to understand, God isn't God without justice, and neither is his love, really love, without justice. Because true love requires justice, as true justice requires love. I want you to hear me on this. Because love is love without justice is just empty sentimentality. It's just empty feelings. God's love is not love without justice, and neither is his justice justice without his love. Because on the other hand, justice without love is simply brutality. In fact, if there's anything that you're going to write down today, these are the two things that you probably want to write down. Love without justice is sentimentality, and justice without love is brutality. For God to be God and for him to be truly either one of these things, he must be both love and justice. He cannot be one without the other. He cannot be God without 
both. And so today we're going to spend some time looking at and talking about God's attributes of love and justice because they're intimately linked and connected together. And I want to be really clear. This is not an easy subject to talk about, and I will admit that. There are a lot of people who struggle to relate to the fact that God is both loving and just, right? Because they rightly understand the idea that justice carries with it some other attributes. Just as love carries with it the ideas of mercy and benevolence and grace. Justice carries with it its own ideas such as anger, righteous hatred, and wrath. And people struggle with these. They struggle with these. Because it's easy to believe in a God of love. Right? It's easy to believe in a God of, of, of mercy and grace and loving kindness. That's the picture that we want to have. That's the picture of, of God in the American church. Come to God because he loves you. And because he loves you, he wants you to be happy. And he wants you to be fulfilled. And he wants you to live your life of, of your dreams. And he never wants you to be sad. And he never wants your feelings to be hurt. Come to Jesus and he will take care of you. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus because he loves you. That's the God of the American church. And it's really easy to relate to that kind of God. It's easy to follow God like that. Because it really requires nothing out of you. Because who wants to follow God who's angry? Or who, a God who hates? Or a God who, who wants... I mean, who wants to follow a God that's full of wrath? Because it seems kind of mean, right? It seems so spiteful. That's why so many people, when it comes to God, they want to separate him into two separate experiences. You have the God of the Old Testament, and then you have the God of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the angry, wrathful, hateful God. But in the New Testament, you have the loving, gracious, benevolent God is what they believe on the one hand, you have a, a mean God who wants to smite everyone, you know, and must be appeased all the time. And on the other hand, you have this nice God who wants to save everyone. It's like people believe that God is one way until Christ actually came. And then suddenly God became nicer. God was once this, you know, fearsome, powerful deity full of rage and anger before Christ came. And then once Jesus came, suddenly God became this friendly, loving, heavenly father full of grace and mercy. That's how many people want to talk about God. Atheists, agnostic, and many professing believers alike, they refer to God really almost in two different senses, like, they're, like he's two different gods. You have the God of the Old Testament, you have the God of the New Testament. The angry, just God and the loving, gracious God. But the thing is, is we know that's not how he is. God is not a split personality. God is not one way in history, you know, and then suddenly becomes a different kind of God later on in history. God is eternal, remember, which means he never changes. He, he always is who he is. God is always loving and just. God is always full of grace and wrath. God is always joyful with his creation, and he's always angry with sin, Right? God is righteously angry, right? God is always merciful, and he's at the same time hateful. And that's an idea we don't like. That right there is an idea that we struggle with, God being angry and hateful. It doesn't sound good to us, right? We don't like that idea, but, but understand that's he is. Just not in the sense that we are. God is righteously angry. And God is righteously hateful. 
God loves goodness and truth and righteousness, and he is angry, and he hates the opposite. Right? He hates sin. He hates death. He hates injustice. He hates pain. Right? God has a righteous hate for these things. Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haunty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. These are things that God hates. Right? Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15, 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Proverbs 15, 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Even Jesus himself, Jesus himself, Revelation 2, 6 says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Bible makes it clear that God does hate and that he is hateful, but righteously so. The problem is we want to equate God's hate with our hate. Our hate is based on our selfishness and our brokenness. God's hate is based on his righteousness and his holiness. He hates evil things, iniquity, sin, death, pain, and those who cause those things. So God is merciful, but at the same time, he is hateful. God is always full of grace, but also wrath. God is always loving and just all the time, and he never changes. So you can't have a God of love without a God of justice. So God is the same in the Old Testament, and God is the same in the New Testament, and I can prove it to you. Look with me to Luke chapter 22. At this part of the text, this is the part of the story that we're really all very familiar with. Christ is just about to finish his ministry here on earth. He has spent three and a half years preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God. He spent three and a half years performing miracles. He spent three and a half years healing people physically and spiritually. Three and a half years he spent teaching his disciples, speaking in parables, loving them, encouraging them, preparing them. And now his time is almost up. At this point, he's, he's already had the last supper with his disciples He's already washed their feet. He's already told them not to let their hearts be troubled because he's already prepared a place for them to go to be with him. Right? He's already told them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. He's already told Peter that Peter's going to deny him. He's already sent Judas away saying, what, whatever you have to do, then go do it quickly. Right? Jesus' life and his ministry are about to reach their climax. He's about to meet the place in history that he came to be. And so soon Jesus is going to be arrested and he knows the very next day what awaits him. He knows he's going to be crucified because he's God. He knows. And so now here he comes to the garden of Gethsemane along with his, with, with his other disciples because he wants to get along with God the Father. And he wants to pray in order to be ready for, the, for, the, for this end of his time here on, on earth. And I want you to really pay close attention to the details here. 
You see, the, the Bible has this kind of like economy of reporting. It tells you the details, but it doesn't always tell you what they mean. And sometimes it just tells them in like really kind of almost expressionless words where you have to like really put yourself in this place. Beginning in Luke 22, verse 39, it says, And he came and went. He came out and went as it was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is a really startling statement. Because this is why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus came to be a sacrifice for sin. He came to suffer and die for the sins of the world. I mean, it was prophesied about that this would happen. Jesus knew this would happen. In fact, he talked to Nicodemus. John chapter 3 talks to Nicodemus and says, right, the son of man must be lifted up. He knew, right, he knew that he had to be crucified. Jesus knew what was going to happen. But here he's saying, Father, if you were willing for this not to happen, then please don't let it happen. Right? Father, you know, if I don't have to go through what I'm about to go through, then don't let me go through it. Right? He says, let this cup, he says, pass from me. Let me not have to drink of this cup. Jesus is saying, Father, if I can get out of this, then please. Let me get out of this. Now, doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, does that make you think, isn't that kind of weird? I mean, Jesus knows what's going to happen, right? He knows this is the plan all along, yet he's asking God, is there any other way? Right? And then Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus says, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have to face this. But it's not about my will and what I want. It's, what, it's about your will. And so if it's your will, then let it be done. But if it's not, then don't let it be done. Verse 43 says, And then appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. God had to send him an angel to strengthen him for what lies ahead. And then look at this. It says, And then being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He was really seeking God. He was begging God. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down. On the ground. What is going on here? I mean, this is the question that you have to ask, right? Because we tend to read these texts like this and we, we see this and we go, oh, that's emotional. And then we move on. We just, we don't really like stop and linger here. Because there's something really, really important here. Why is Jesus behaving this way? Why is he begging the father? Don't let this happen. Why is he so distraught that sweats of blood are dripping out of him? That he needs an angel to strengthen him. In fact, Matthew, his gospel uh, records Jesus is saying, is my soul is sorrowful even to death. And it says that, that Jesus not only said, ask this cup to pass from me once. He asked for, for it twice. Twice he asked the father to let it pass. Right? But this is the Messiah. This is Jesus, the son of God. Why is he acting like this? Why is Jesus so afraid? Now, many people say, well, he's afraid because of the torture he's about to endure. That crucifixion was a horrific way to die. But that is not the answer. I mean, granted, crucifixion was a horrible way to die. But there were lots of people who were tortured to death for their faith that didn't act like this. 
There were lots of people who had been beaten and crucified who didn't act terrified like this. In fact, there were many early apostles who, 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 were, who were gladly martyred for their faith. They rejoiced for the fact that they recounted worthy to suffer with Christ. They bravely faced their impending doom. Church tradition has it that Peter asked to be crucified upside down, which is more painful because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified in the same fashion as Christ. Many, many church martyrs were not only crucified, but they were skinned alive. And many of them were set on fire and burned alive. They were, they were like human torches and they were singing and rejoicing as they were being tortured and killed. In fact, there was a martyr in India who was skinned alive as his torturers were peeling off his skin. He said to them, I thank you for this because you are removing from me my old garments because soon I'll be clothed in Christ's righteousness. The martyr Christopher for love, his wife wrote him a letter and said that, that you know, said that about his, his impending torture and execution, you're about to dress yourself in your wedding garments. They may sever you from your physical head, but they can never sever you from your spiritual head, which is Christ. And as he went to the gallows, his wife was applauding him and he was singing all the way there about glory. Are you telling me people like that are more courageous than Christ, God in the flesh? No. What was Jesus really scared of here? Jesus was not terrified at the prospect of being beaten. He was not afraid of the idea of having nine-inch nails hammered into his hands and his feet. He was not scared of his Roman captors. He was not sweating drops of blood because he knew he would spend hours hanging dehydrated on a, and slowly suffocating on a cross. No. He did not cry out to God, let this cup pass from me because he's afraid of Roman cross. No. Jesus was terrified of the symbolic cup that God had given him to drink from. He was terrified of what was in the cup that he had to drink. That was what was vexing him. So what was in the cup then? Well, God tells us what was in the cup. He says in Jeremiah 25, 15, that this is the cup filled with the wine of my wrath. That is what Jesus was terrified of. The wrath of God. Isaiah 51, 17 it is the cup of God's wrath. Revelation 14.10. The cup is filled with the wine of God's wrath. Revelation 16.19 calls it the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. You see, the, the cup symbolized the wrath of God. And Jesus has been brought to the point in history. His whole reason to come here was to drink it and to receive it. He had come to take upon himself and in himself the full anger and hatred and wrath of God. Jesus was terrified because he was about to experience the full weight and the full fury of God's holy and righteous wrath. God's anger, his hatred, his wrath was about to be poured on Christ the Son. And Jesus knew full well what that meant. He was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. That is meant for us. It was destined for us. What a terrifying, awful prospect. Jesus was about, to experience, was about to experience the fullness of God's hatred against sin. His full hatred against iniquity. 
He was about to experience the fullness of God's anger against evil and evildoers. Jesus knew that the very next step would bring him to the place where the fullness of the fury of his wrath was about to be poured out on him. Isaiah 53.10 says that God was pleased to crush him. That text haunts me. But the Roman cross was not what crushed him. It was the wrath of God that crushed him. Jesus did not cry out to God because he was dying a slow death. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing the soul-crushing weight of God's holy and righteous justice being done upon him for our sins. The fullness of his, of his righteous hatred of sin. The fullness of his anger. The fullness of his awesome and terrible wrath. Because God has always been a God of love and a God of justice. Just look at the cross. The cross is the very intersection of God's justice and his love. It's the intersection of his wrath and his grace. On the cross is where God could could show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the ones who have faith in Christ. That he might be just in pouring out his wrath on sin, but also by grace be the one who justifies the ones who trust in Christ by faith. It is both the love of God and the justice of God that sent Christ to the cross. God's justice could not let you get a pass for your sin. But God's love allowed Christ to take your place. And Jesus, he took that cup of God's wrath. And he drank it down to the very last drop. And he turned the cup over and victoriously said, it is finished as he died on the cross. One preacher tells a story and he puts it this way. He says, the wrath of God is like you're standing 100 yards away from a giant dam that's 10,000 feet high. And as you stand there looking up at this great massive wall that is filled to the brim, the waters are filling it to the brim so much that they're starting to spill over. And you're standing there staring at this gigantic awesome structure knowing that it's about to fail and you know that your your doom is sure and then suddenly the dam breaks and trillions and trillions of gallons of water with all their energy and all their force come rushing towards you so much so that it begins to blot out the sun as it descends towards you and just before you experience this indescribable torrent A hole in the earth opens up inches in front of you and swallows up every single drop of water instantly. Not even a hint of mist touches you. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. You're not just saved because Jesus was beaten. We're not saved because a crown of thorns was jammed onto his head. We're not saved because a a soldier jammed a a spear in his side. We're saved because Jesus drank down every drop of God's wrath that he had stored up for you. God is certainly love, but he's also just. And on the cross, you see both of these 
glorious attributes and their full glory. His justice and his love, his wrath and his grace, his hatred and his mercy, his anger and his benevolence. The cross is the clearest symbol of who God is. That's why I think it's so important to us. Because in it, we see the fuller picture of God, this eternal and holy and transcendent God who is also eminent and physically present in Jesus Christ, the son. And because God is divine because of his love for us, the father pours out his divine wrath upon God, the son, so that we could be saved. And God, the Holy Spirit comes and applies that salvation to us, taking up residence with inside of us, giving this assurance and reminding us that God's wrath no longer abides on us because we put our faith in the one who bore the penalty of our sin on that cross. The cross is the intersection between God's love and his justice. Now, we might be tempted to think that, well, if Christ bore the wrath of God, that means then God's wrath no longer exists, right? God is no longer angry. He no longer has hate, right? Now that Jesus has come, God no longer, you know, is a God of wrath, right? Well, no, it's wrong. Because God does not change. He is still angry about sin. He still hates iniquity. He's still full of wrath because he's still a God of justice. But I just thought you said that Jesus drank down the God's wrath, that God poured out his wrath upon Christ. And yes, he did for those who trust in Christ. For those who put their faith in Christ, for those who believe the gospel and receive Christ as their savior. But for those who reject Christ and turn away, for those who spurn Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, the wrath of God still abides on them. John 3 verse 36 says, whoever believes the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We really need to understand that. Especially as we minister the gospel to other people. For those who have trusted in and obeyed the gospel, the wrath of God is over, it's finished. Never to be worried about ever again. But for those who refuse to believe the gospel and obey the gospel, for those who refuse to trust in Christ as Savior, the wrath of God remains on them. The same terrible wrath that Jesus, that caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood, the same anger that caused Jesus to beg the Father, let this cup pass from him. The same wrath abides on, the, on anyone who does not trust in Christ, who refuses to believe in Jesus. Now, you, now some people might object and say, well, wh- why can't Jesus' sacrifice, as, as big as it was, why can't I just take care of the wrath for everyone? Why can't everybody just be forgiven? Because Jesus already took the wrath of God. Well, the problem is you can't have possession of something that you reject. You can't have something that you refuse to receive. And, you know, of all the the, the places that this started to make more sense to me, I was watching some dumb TV show. And there was a scene that just really, like, helped me to, to understand this a little bit better. There was a woman who, in the show, who was about to be condemned to die by hanging because she, she shot a criminal and he, and he, and he died. And so under the law, she was guilty of murder. But nobody wanted her to die, right? Nobody liked her. Nobody wanted her to be executed. Not even the judge, not even the governor wanted her to die. Every one of them wanted her to go to free, but she refused. And, and, and one of the main characters came to the governor and said, pardon her. 
You have the you have the power to partner, so just do it. And the governor said, "Yes, I do. You know, I do have the partner, the power to partner, and I would, I would do it in an instant." But she has to accept the pardon. Right? My pardon means nothing under the law unless she accepts it. To which she refused and everyone around her was begging her to accept the pardon. But all they could do is watch her stubbornly die for something that she could have been pardoned for. It's the same way with Christ. It's the same way with people. People stubbornly refusing the pardon that's offered to them. Jesus bore the penalty of their sin. He took upon himself the wrath that you and I deserved. He extends to you and the whole world a pardon from judgment. The judgment to come, from the fury to come. But you have only but receive it by faith. You have only to accept that pardon by believing in Jesus. The pardon is offered to you. You only need to accept it. For God so loved the world that he gave a propitiation, his only son. And whoever believes in him will be saved. It's really simple, the gospel. Whoever believes in him will not experience the wrath of God, but whoever refuses the wrath of God remains on him. And one day it will be poured out on him. In fact, in John 3.18, that's always the verse we, we, we leave off of. We, we read 3.16 and we forget to read 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So God remains a God of love and a God of justice. He is a God of grace, but also a God of wrath. But the most devastating truth for those who refuse to trust in Christ is the truth that Christ, for those who believe, is an instrument of God's grace. But for those who refuse him, Christ will also be an instrument of God's wrath and divine judgment. And this is the truth that many people, including many Christians, do not want to accept. We want to reject this just, just out of hand. Because the picture of most people of Jesus in their mind is this mild-mannered, soft-spoken, patient, tender man, which he absolutely is. But Jesus is also more than that. Jesus is certainly the meek lamb of God who was slain to bring forgiveness. But he is also the furious lion of Judah and has the power to devour his enemies. And I want to share with you one last text to prove that. Revelation 19, beginning in chapter 11, John says, Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Who is the word of God? We know who the word of God is. It's Jesus. Just read John chapter 1. This is a picture of Jesus. And he is coming not to rescue. He is coming to destroy. He's not coming to save. He's coming to judge. As it goes on, it says, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. In white on white horses, 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And look at this. It says, this is Jesus here, okay? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the picture that we don't oftentimes want to look at. At the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and became an instrument of grace for those who, did, who would receive him. But for those who refuse him, for those who turn away from him, those who reject him, Jesus is the instrument of God's holy and righteous wrath to be poured out on them. Because Jesus, being God in the flesh, is both love and just. He is both wrath and grace. He is both the meek lamb and the ferocious lion. We sing about it this morning in a song that we all love. How great is our God. And we say those words and sometimes we don't realize what they mean. He is the lion and the lamb. The question that people that you have to answer is, how will you relate to him? How will you experience Jesus? It's really only a matter of trusting in him or rejecting him. Either you put your faith and hope in Jesus and you were saved by him or you reject him and you will be judged and condemned and destroyed by him because he is both love and just. So the choice is really yours. Which do you choose? The gift of faith and eternal life are offered to all who would come. God's wrath against you has been dealt with. Receive Christ as your Savior and live. My encouragement is, this is a message we need to share with those that we love. I know that so many of us struggle to share our faith with our friends and our families. Because there's something in us that, that holds us back. But I want you to hear me on this. If you fully understood the torrent that awaits them. See, it's really easy for us to fall asleep in our American context. To think, you know what? They're just good people. God's not going to judge good people. We lose sight of what righteousness and holiness is really easily. It's like Billy Graham. We know where Billy Graham went. But then Stephen Hawking, what about him? The sweet man in a wheelchair who spat in the face of God for years and years and years and years. It's a startling reality that he is experiencing the full weight of the wrath of a God that he has rejected his whole life. Now, I pray that at the very last second he decided to trust in Christ and was saved like the thief on the cross. But this should be the motivation for all of us because I believe that all of you are believers. This should be the motivation for all of us to share the hope of Christ with our friends and our family. The, the thought of my nephews experiencing the wrath of God is more than I can bear. I have an obligation to share the hope of Christ, the grace, the story that he, Jesus Christ, bore the wrath of God for all of us.
So that is your commission as we get ready for Easter, is to go out and share the hope of Christ with our community and our world. If you begin to fear, just remember, Jesus was terrified in the garden about what he was to face, which is the wrath of God. Let that motivate you to overcome your fear, knowing that you were walking triumphantly with Christ in your heart and the Holy Spirit going before you. Jesus, God in the flesh, is both a God of love and a God of justice. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, let the weight of your truth sit fully on my shoulders. Let it compress me and force me even more into the mold and the image of Christ. Let it change me. Let it motivate me, Lord. Father, let me never lose sight of the beauty of your love. Let me never lose sight of the fact that I was a sinner lost and you saved me because you loved me. Let me never lose sight of the glorious truth that salvation has been extended to a wretch like me. But at the same time, never let me lose sight of the fact that you're a God of justice. And it was justice that sent Jesus to the cross and justice remains on those who refuse him. Father, lift up your people in this church. Motivate them, Lord God, by your truth and the gospel to go share the hope of Christ with their friends and their family in this community, Lord God. We're not, we're not trying to get people to join a club. We're trying to save people from the wrath to come. We're trying to save people for eternity, Lord God. We want people to know you and to be saved. We want to spend eternity with them, loving them, seeing their faces, Lord God. So, Father, give us a heart for evangelism. Give us a heart to share Jesus. Father, make Boron a community that's saturated from one end to the next with the gospel and a place that's a beacon of hope for the world. Father, I love you, Lord, and I praise you praise you for all these that are here. I pray your blessing over all of them and their families, Lord God. I pray that you'd meet all of their needs emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, whatever they need, Lord, you'd see that you'd have, they would have it. And I pray, Father God, that today you would draw them even closer into your loving embrace, helping them to know you more, helping them to walk with you all the days of their lives. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.